We're in Ezekiel chapter 10 tonight. Twenty-two verses. Verse 1, God's word. Then I looked, and behold, in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone, in appearance resembling a throne, appeared above them. He spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, Enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim and fill your hands with the coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he entered into my sight. Now the cherubim was standing on the right side of the temple where the man entered and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple. And the temple was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Moreover, the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. It came about when he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from between the whirling wheels from between the cherubim. He entered and stood beside a wheel. Then the cherub stood, stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire, which was between the cherubim, took some and put it into the hands of the one clothed in linen. He took it and he went out. The cherub cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings. And then I looked and behold four wheels beside the cherubim, one wheel beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like the gleam of a Tarshish stone. As for their appearance, all four of them had the same likeness as if one wheel were within another wheel. When they moved, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went, but they followed in the directions which they faced without turning as they went. Their whole body, their backs, their hands, their wings, and the wheels were full of eyes all around, the wheels belonging to all four of them. The wheels were called in my hearing the whirling wheels. And each one of them had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face was the face of a man. The third, the face of a lion. The fourth, the face of an eagle. Then the cherubim rose up, and they are the living beings that I saw by the river Chebar. Now when the cherubim moved, the wheels would go beside them. Also, when the cherubim lifted up their wings to rise from the ground, the wheels would not turn from beside them. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels would stand still. When they rose up, the wheels would rise with them, for the spirit of the living beings was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. When the cherubim departed, they lifted their wheels and rose up from the earth in my sight, and the wheels beside them, they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. These are the living beings that I saw beneath the God of Israel by the river Chebar, so that I knew that they were cherubim. Each of them had four faces, each had four wings. Beneath their wings was the form of human hands. As for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the river Chebar, each one went straight ahead. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you in the name of Christ, your Son. We ask, Almighty God, that you would assist me in the ministry of the word, the preaching, and all of us in the receiving of it. And I pray that we would be those that tremble at your word and love you, delight in your presence and both here as we enjoy it imperfectly and we long for it perfectly when you call us to go. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
I want us to see um, that what we look at, we want to, I want to start with Christ here in verse 1. Uh, we've, seen, we've seen this in a number of different um, chapters that we've looked at thus far. So the passage starts off with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ on his throne, high and lifted up. He's over the cherubim. He's over the angels, the angelic hosts. These are the angelic servants of God. Christ's throne is over them. He's certainly over, um, over all men. And I looked and behold, there was expanse. Um, that was one over the heads of the cherubim, the appearance resembling a throne. And then we, we have, we've seen this in chapter 1, chapter 2. We have Christ on his throne. We've spoken about Christ as our mediator. He's our prophet, our priest, and our king. I'm dressed in linen, I would argue, is indicative of his priestly office. But the chapter starts off, and it's what I'm mainly wanting to focus in on tonight is verse 18, the glory of God departing from the temple. That, I think, is the primary significance of this passage. But to begin the passage, remember we've been walking through judgment, judgment, judgment upon the household of God, and then now we have Christ high and lifted up. God the Holy Spirit clearly wants his people to focus our hearts and our minds above where Christ is on the throne. Sometimes, as God's people, we forget the dignity, the glory, the grandeur, the majesty of God. We make our God something of just like, almost like the Greek myth gods. They were just a little bit cut higher in intelligence and strength from from a human being, but certainly not high and lifted up. Clearly, God wants us to lift our, our minds up to heaven. He wants to see God in Christ, in his, um, in his glory, uh, over angels, over men. Not, and it's not that when we think of Christ, we're, it's not that we're not to think of him as our, our older brother or our friend. Certainly, when the second person of the Trinity took flesh, he came near, he became one of us. It's very, very true. We refer to that as the imminence of God. But here we're looking at something of the transcendence of God, that God is other. And I would argue that we as Christian people, individually and then corporately as the church, we would live more Christ-like lives, holier lives. And we would love God more and love people more if we spent more time setting our minds on things above and not on things below, which is what this is even doing inherently when we're taken right away to the scene up, look up. Most of us, I would argue, uh, certainly I know I do, we spend far too much of the time that God has given us. And I, <laughs> I think that's the way we should think of it. It's not our time. God has given us a commodity of time to use for his glory, uh, our joy in serving him. We spend way too much time thinking about things below and not enough time thinking on things above. And if, even if we just quantified it, how much time this week have we spent thinking on Christ, Christ on the cross, Christ on his throne, um, in relationship to say um, how much time we've been spent trying to figure out why did President Putin invade the Ukraine? I've spent hours. I, I still don't know the answer to that. I don't know why. And I've been watching news program after news. I want to, we, we are people in the world and I want to understand. So I've spent tons of time watching what's going on and I'm not saying that this is not a worthwhile endeavor it's just I know what happens to my mind and my heart when I become absorbed with things here below and and I'm not looking at 
Christ in his estate of, of exaltation, which is what this is. Um, we, we would comfort our own souls if we would remember, J.C. Rowell said, I'm not a political preacher, but I have one political maxim. Christ is king and Christ is on his throne. We would, do, we would, we would be better off I, I, you know I'm not for living in a commune. Um, if the commune worked, and I love the country, I would live in a commune. Um, but we would do well if we took our minds just for a little bit off of the earth and we did what this passage is directing God's people uh, to look upon the throne. We've said we've seen this picture of Christ before. Ezekiel chapter 8, he refers even within this chapter back to that chapter. He actually says, this is the glory is God and the and the beings I saw by the river Chabar. This is in chapter eight, uh, chapter one, chapter eight, verse four. Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the appearance which I saw in the plain. So we're looking at Christ in His exalted state, not Christ in His state of humiliation, and that's significant for the people of God. Sometimes not only do we get too absorbed with the kingdoms of this world in our own little kingdom. We forget that Jesus Christ is no longer in the state of suffering and humiliation. He really is on a throne. And he's glorious and he's exalted. Even though we can't see him, the Bible says that. We would bolster our own faith to to remind ourselves, the Bible says that Christ is the victor. He wins. And as Christ's people, even though it doesn't look like it, um, we win. We we win. Uh, We win in Christ. Anyone that trusts in Christ will never be ashamed. This passage though it's God saying to his people, I'm taking my presence from the temple. I'm taking my glory from the temple. We who are the temple of the living God, he will never take his presence from us. But God wants us to direct our minds both towards him and also to remind ourselves that he is a glorious God. Now, if you're if you familiar with the book of uh, Ezekiel or you've been paying attention, you'll know right away that this chapter in some way is very similar with chapter 1. In chapter 1, we have these angelic creatures, and we have them back here in chapter 10. In chapter 1, I think it was chapter 1, we have the wheels with the eyes. They're back here again. There are subtle differences, and I confess I I have some inclination to why the differences, but they're very subtle. In chapter 1, the creatures are not called cherubim. They're called living creatures. There are angels are some real creature. We... To us, they're invisible. Um, we see here, as I'll walk through later, that angels are ministering spirits, uh, but they are real creatures. They're not stronger than God. They're not God. They are creatures. And they're called living beings in chapter 1. Here, they're called cherubim. Remember that suffix in Hebrew, im, is plural, and then sometimes cherub is singular. And so they're given, they're a species of, I think there are various kinds of uh, angels, and this is certainly a class of angel, though angels are not uh, a race like human beings. They don't procreate. They are individually created creatures. And so the other similarity is um, we we have the the creatures, and the the dissimilarity is we're told what kind of particular angelic being, their cherubim. You have the, the description of them with their wings and so on and their various faces. The other thing is, is we have these wheels with the eyes on them. One of the distinctions from chapter 1 to chapter 10, and I, th- I think this is true, I think in chapter 1, 
the the angelic beings, the the cherubim, went someplace, and then the wheels followed after them. At least here, it looks almost as if the wheel goes, and then wherever the wheel goes, um, the angel follows. Um, I'll, I'll we'll touch on this later in the sermon, but there are just some the minor differences. But essentially, we're looking at a continuous theme going on here. But I would say, um, in keeping with my kind of hermeneutic, trying to understand a, a text, what we have here is God is about to judge an unbelieving people, professing believing but unbelieving. He's about to judge them. He's going to judge them through the ministry of his servants. If you know the book of Revelation, very, very similar. God sends out his angelic beings, and they're announcing judgment. So we're being taught here, even if some of the particulars are too perplexing for us, some of the the general themes are understandable. God is going to bring judgment on unbelief and sin, idolatry here in context, and oftentimes he brings judgment via um, uh, instruments. And in this case, it's an angelic servant. Sometimes he can use human servants to bring judgment. And then the thing with the wheels and the eyes is clearly that this is God's judgment is, is rolling from place to place and with the business of the eyes is that he's doing it with perfect knowledge. And the business with the various faces, I think it's like he does it with the strength of an ox or the intelligence of a man, the ferocity of, an, of, a, of a lion. I wouldn't die on that hill. There are many, many men, including Calvin, said these things are exceedingly perplexing. But again, most of the reformers that I've studied trying to understand this, they're looking for those main themes which are more readily grasped. Um, if you look at verse um, 18, this is really, the theme of the sermon is really found in verse 18. And the glory of the Lord departs from the threshold of the temple. And so for the remainder of our time, we're just going to um, consider the idea of God taking his glory away from his temple. That's the essence of what this chapter is um, is all about. And I would argue this. If we understand that point, then even as we labor to make sense of the other particulars, when we know that they're supportive or subordinate to the main point, I would argue we have a much better chance at getting discerning rightly what those secondary uh, points, what they mean. And, and, and if I could flip that around, if we spent all of our time on some of the more difficult things, I think it would te- we, we would tend to fall into the error of being speculative. Um, and I would apply the same kind of idea when I study a parable. I was taught by older and wiser ministers than myself, when I study a parable, that we're to look for the main idea and not to first say, well, I, I think the, the, the many pigs are this. This is what the, the number of swine really means. To, well, the idea of God casting the, 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 the evil spirits into the swine, the number is, is not the importance. And the business is, is Jesus Christ is putting down the kingdom of the devil and freeing man who is bound by the kingdom of the devil. And so when we study some of these Old Testament passages, and, and Ezekiel is, is, is a highly symbolical book. I would argue the only book that's probably more symbolical is a New Testament book, the book of Revelation. People love to be super speculative, um, I read the book of Revelation the way that I read this particular book, looking for the main point. And you can come to this passage and say, well, the main point of chapter 10 is God says, I'm going to take my presence away from the temple. And you'd be correct. 
He's been threatening to do that for three chapters, and now he says it's going to happen. So that's the main idea. And so God has been threatening his people from, I think, chapter 8, certainly 9 in here, to take his presence from them because of their persistent, unrepentant practice of idolatry. And so when God says, I'm going to take my presence, it is for the reason of the people's unrepentant, persistent idolatry. And what I'd like to do, since this is a thematic sermon, is to step back, because we're looking at really divine punishment for for idolatry. And it's helpful for us to at least to, to define what idolatry is in order to understand why God is so incensed with idolatry. We may have looked at it last week, I can't remember. There, there are two ways to define um, idolatry. One is broadly speaking, and then one is narrowly speaking. Broadly speaking, I would say idolatry is a breach of the first commandment. And the, the, the first commandment can be, can be seen both in a positive and a negative light. In the first commandment, God requires all creatures, because he is God and human beings, or excuse me, human beings as creatures, we are required to give glory and worship to God, the true God of the Bible, and to give it to him alone. So idolatry is when we, we don't give the worship and the glory which is due to God alone. That's a breach of it. And then related to that negatively, when we give glory and honor and worship to any other God other than the true God. So we can break it both by sins of omission and commission. And so the children of Israel were guilty of not worshiping the God as the true God and giving the worship of the true God to other gods. So that's idolatry written large. And so you could say to yourself, does the Christian church ever break the sin, uh, uh, commit the sin of idolatry in that large sense? Do we ever have any other gods or do we give the worship which is due to God to any other god and do we sometimes not give God the worship due to his name? And of course, the, the answer is yes. But that's the breach of the first commandment. If I were going to define uh, idolatry narrowly, I would define it as a breach of the second commandment. It's when we try to worship the true and the living God in a way that God has not prescribed. So, and ordinarily it's through, through some kind of image or um, carving image, paintings, that kind of thing. But the key is trying to worship the true God in a way that God has not prescribed. So contrary to what God has said. So in other words, think of it like this. God says in his word, I want you to worship me like this. And idolatry would be something like this. Okay, we hear you, God. We're not going to worship you according to your word. What we're going to do is we're going to worship you according to our word. We'll still say it's worship of you, but it won't be according to your, your word. It will be according to our word. That's idolatry. That's a Colossians towards the end, 20, 21, 22, 23, something like that. It's man-made, self-made religion. It's the religion of the Pharisees. It's the religion of Mark 7, 1 through 11. And Jesus says, many things like this you do. You nullify the commandments of God, the, the, the word of God, and you try to worship God according to the commandments and the traditions of men. That's idolatry. Imagine God saying, I want you to worship me this way. And we say, God, okay, we hear what you're saying. We're not going to worship you the way that you want. We're still going to worship you, but we're going to worship you the way that we want. That's idolatry. 
And imagine that. Is that really the worship of God if it's not according to what God wants? It's repudiating what God wants, and it's elevating the word of man over the word of God. That's what the people are doing here. And so um, I was reading something. It was a post against abortion, and obviously I'm for the protection of innocent life, and, and it, they called themselves uh, abolitionists. And it's frightening because I don't like the use of, I don't even like the, the people when they talk about the use of violence. I, you, I've preached this since I've been here. We are lambs and doves. We are, we, we're not lions and tigers, tigers and bears. Um, the, state, the state wields the sword. The Christian church never wields the sword. Um, this is my view. You may have a different view. So when I was looking at this, the person was incensed with the sin of, uh, of abortion, which God finds obnoxious as well. And they were arguing for a certain punishment for it. What about the sin of idolatry? What about the sin... This, the murder of another human being is man's destruction of another human being, which is obnoxious. But what about the utter repudiation of the God of the Bible and making the God of the Bible a calf, a, 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 even, a, even, even a form of a man? What about saying to God, no, I'm not going to worship you the way that you want. I will worship you the way that I I'll worship another God over you. What about that? And God clearly here says you're breaking the greatest of the commandments. The second great commandment is to love the, your brother as your neighbor as yourself. But this is, a, this is a breach of the greatest commandment in the Bible. And the greatest commandment of the Bible is to love God. And idolatry is spitting in the face of God. It's, the, it's a hatred of the true God. And so that's it. So I, I don't have the requisite vocabulary to paint the, um, the aggravation of this particular sin. It, it, it is, uh, in God's eyes, this is the greatest sin uh, to um, give his worship and glory, which is due to him alone, to any other. So that's the definition of idolatry. Now, lots of things. We don't have to carve images of Baal or Chemosh or Molech or those things. The Bible says in the book of uh, Ephesians, chapter 5, maybe the first 10 verses, something like that, course, jesting, covetousness, immorality, sensuality, these things are, are, are idolatry. And so we can, human beings are, we are some idol-making, false god-making critters. And so we can give the worship to our job, our money, our honor, our, our fill-in-the-blank, anything. And God says you can't serve two gods. You, you have to love um, only one. And what the passage here is saying is, that there's actually a punishment for idolatry. And God is saying to his people over and over again, even in this passage, I know it's going to seem strange because it seems to get, it keeps getting increasingly intense. I, I know I am a strange minister. I, I see, even in chapter 10, and God says, now my, my, my presence is leaving. I see even behind the dark clouds of God's providential justice, the glimmers of mercy. And why do I say that? Um, chapter 8, I'm going. Chapter 9, I'm going. Chapter 10, I'm going. Now, certainly, there was a time's up for the people of God here. But we're reading this. N none of us is beyond the day of grace. 
anyone reading this under the conviction of the Holy Spirit could say, oh God, please don't, don't leave me. Oh God, draw near to me in Christ. So this, this even by inference, is a token of the long-suffering, and I would argue even of the mercy, uh, at least I, I say so. But nevertheless, God is telling us that I, I will punish for the sin of idolatry. When I talk about punishment, sometimes we use the word punishment and discipline um, interchangeably, and sometimes legitimately so. Usually I'm keen in my own preaching or teaching, and even in my common speech concerning the Bible, I usually retain the word punishment for something judicial that only unbelievers receive. And I usually am keen to use the word fatherly correction or chastisement or discipline for what only believers receive. So a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have no divine condemnation. As a believer in the Lord Jesus, if you are born again, you love Christ, God will never take his presence from you. Ever, 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 ever. You say you're saying once saved, always saved. However you want to phrase it. I'll phrase it with the Reformed language, the perseverance of the saints. We will persevere because God will preserve us. God will never, ever, ever, ever forsake you. He never leaves you, never. He may, and I was going to bring this out, but I won't. I'll just mention it. Our Confession of Faith, chapter 5, paragraph 5, has paragraph 5 and paragraph 6. Paragraphs 5 is to the believer. Paragraph 6 is to the unbeliever. Paragraph 5, God will sometimes hide his fatherly face. It looks as if God is taking his presence. And we feel like he's taking his presence. But it's the father to the son. And it's, a, it's, 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 it's meant to engender that the, the sinful son would say, Father, Father, I can't see your friendly face. And he's, it's, he's only hiding his friendly face. That's chapter, six, chapter 5, paragraph 5. But in paragraph 6 of chapter 5, it's God's providence towards the unbeliever. And to them, when he says, I'm taking my presence from you, it's an act, it's a judicial act. He, he's, he, he's, there's no offers of grace. The only thing that remains is justice. And I would argue that the people that are unbelievers here, and God says, I'm taking my presence, it's an act of justice. Now remember, in many, many of the chapters, God will explicitly say, it's implicit in this chapter, it's not stated he has a believing remnant. There are people here that are real believers. They're in heaven. And so to them, he's hiding his fatherly face. And it's not judicial, it's fatherly. But to the, the unbeliever in the household of faith that is a persistent idolater, God says, I will remove my glorious presence from this place. It's an, it's a, it's an act of justice. And we've said, I say it probably ad nauseum. I never mean to depress or deject the people of God. The people of God on earth, um, until we go home, we're a mixed multitude. I, our brother George read it. The best church on earth. The best church on earth. We are a mixture of truth and error. I heard someone once say, if there's rat poison, it's like, I don't know, 99% something inert, uh, and then 1% poison. So if a church is 99% true, but 1% poison You've got to leave it. You've got to find the 100% church. Well, to find the church that has 100% truth with no, no mixture of error? Where would that be? 
that comes when they say, brother or sister, boy, they are in the church victorious. They're finally at the church at rest. There is no church on the earth that's 100% error-free. None. <laughs> because it's filled with people like us. But a church can degenerate, which is what we're looking at in chapter 10. And it says it can degenerate so far that it no longer is a church of Christ. It degenerates into what the Bible says in Revelation 2, Revelation 3, which is what this language comes from, a synagogue of Satan. So this isn't just synagogue of Satan. Boy, these were some angry, mean-spirited, impurity <laughs> people. They're merely taking from what Jesus says in Revelation 2 and 3, I believe. The synagogue of Satan. A synagogue of Satan would be a church that has lost the gospel. If you have a gospel, you're a true church. If you don't have the true gospel, you're a synagogue of Satan. You may, it may be a beautiful church building, but you're no longer a, a true church. If you have the true gospel, you're a true church. This is why for me, just as an aside, I have a large view of the church. Anyone that has the gospel is my brother and sister in Christ, whether they don't sprinkle or speak in tongues. If you have the true gospel, which is that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, if you believe the true gospel, you're my brother and sister in Christ. That's a true church. Um, other things aside. But we see that here, let's just talk about the idea of punishment. God says, I, I will punish you for breaking my law. And this is something, a lot of this maybe is like Christianity 101, and you might think, well, we, Pastor John, you're, you're speaking to Christians that were at least in the 200 level. And I agree with that. We, we are at least, I, I guess I agree. You all are in the 200 level. I think maybe sometimes I, I have a hard time getting out of the 100 level. We sometimes forget that. That God actually is a holy and a just God. And we, we and I hope I do. I hope I focus on the love and the mercy of God. I hope I do. I think I do. Christians can sin with a high hand because we forget that our God is holy. And we forget that God says the wages of sin. And so I... Let's just say when we talk to the unbelievers, no one, I don't know of anybody that delights in making anyone sad. Maybe there are. When we talk to an unbeliever, we want to put them in heaven just because we love them. Even We don't want to tell them, listen, the wages of sin is death. We want to tell them the free offer of God is eternal life in Christ, but we, want to, we don't want to tell them the wages of sin is death part because that's so painful. But I would argue the good part doesn't make sense without the painful part. We're looking at the painful part. It's John 3.16 is true, 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 true. But John 3.16 occurs because people have committed sins like this. So they're both true. And I would argue that they're dependent upon one another. We, we sometimes, for many, many reasons, and some perhaps even good reasons, um, we forget that God is a holy and a just God. And that there really is a punishment, punishment, and to the unbeliever, it's not discipline. Sometimes I've actually heard people quote Romans 8.28 to the unbeliever. All things works together for the good. Apart from Jesus, the presence of God will be utterly removed from you, which is, which is, which is the second death. And it won't work out well. And we should be honest to, to really quote the full Romans 8.28. To all those who love God and who are called to God and Christ. And, and so it won't work out for the person that's unrepentant sinner. 
that doesn't come to God in Christ and repent of their sin, and in this case, idolatry. But while we hear that, I maintain that while a person is still breathing, if they've not committed the, the sin of um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that today is the day of grace, that we could repent and turn to God in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, and then we'll have the presence of God, and he'll never remove it from us. But this clearly is a section where God says, I actually will judge you for the breach of my moral law. I went out today for a walk, and there's always a question in the, in the presbytery, can you, walk on, can you go out for a walk on the Sabbath and not break the Sabbath? I always have maintained that you could go out for a walk. Maybe you shouldn't play sports for money while you're going out for your walk, but I go out for a walk, and partly I go out for a walk because I need blood viscosity because of my blood clots. So I was out for a walk, and I walked by a person, and we, we talked about things of the Lord. These things, as I was just listening, I did more listening than, uh, than talking. The business of judgment was brought up on why folks don't go to church. Um, I didn't downplay it. I didn't speak to it. I didn't address it. I just said, you know, thanks. Nice to meet you. I'm such and so. And off I went and told him I loved him, loved Christ, and so on. The judgment of God for sins is why we need Christ. It's why we need Christ. Um, if God did not judge sins, you would never have Christ say, my God, my God. But the long and the short of it is the penalty for breaking God's law really is this. God says, the penalty is I'm going to remove my presence. And you would say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. I thought the text says the penalty for death is for sin is death. That's exactly right. If you've been, if you've listened to me <laughs> for any length of time, you know that I see life in connection with God and I also understand death also in relationship to God. And so when God says, I'm going to remove my presence, I want to maybe refine something here. I'm going to refine it as God's friendly or reconciled or loving presence. Because God is an omnipresent God. So when someone says, well, how can the, an omnipresent God say I'm removing my presence? I understand. God is everywhere. And sometimes people say, well, God is not in hell. God is the omnipresent God. God is in hell. It's just not this presence of God. It's not the glorious, friendly, loving, reconciled presence. That's what he's removing. And when God takes his friendly, reconciled, loving presence away, the only thing that remains is his judicial, his holy, offended, judicial presence. And one man um, said this, I think it was Derek, Derek Thomas, um, the minister, a very, very, very fine minister. He, um, in the ARP, he actually baptized my son, my grandson, William, he said, when God removes this presence, that's when hell begins. That's death. Death is the removal of God's friendly, reconciled presence. Um, and when God said, you're going to, the day, Adam, you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Genesis 2, Genesis uh, verse 16 and 17. When Adam and Eve ate that fruit, did they just drop over dead did they hit the deck no 
The principle of physical death was introduced immediately, but what happened the nanosecond Adam, the first federal representative, ate the fruit? He was terrified of God, and he hid from him, and he ran, and he was afraid of God. That's death. That's death. Knowing that God is no longer reconciled to you, no longer, you're no longer acceptable to God because God's are too, his eyes are too pure to look upon uh, evil or sin with approval. That's death. Death is no longer having that reconciled, friendly, merciful presence. And then when God removes that presence from us, the only thing that remains is the offended presence of God. So when God tells the people, I'm taking my friendly presence from the temple, you're not going to have my reconciled presence. The only thing that will remain is God's judicial presence. And, and that, to me, is death. And so Derek Thomas is exactly right. When God takes that friendly, reconciled presence, that's hell. And I want, I want to say something. I've had people say to me, if the God of the Bible is, the, is God, with all of this business that we're looking at, then I want nothing to do with that God because to be in that God's presence would be my hell. It's the exact opposite of what Derek Thomas rightly says. To lose this God from being our God, our Father, our Brother, our Comforter, that's death. That's hell. But the unbeliever reasons the exact opposite. Oh, to be in the presence of this holy God, that's hell to me. And that indicates that their heart is at enmity with God. And beloved, all of us were there. You may have been converted younger, and so you don't remember the enmity in your heart. I was converted later, so I do remember the enmity in my heart. When someone said, do you want to be in the presence of holy Bible God? No, of course I don't want to be in his presence. Why? Because I have big plans for some big sin tonight. And he's going to cramp my style. To be in the holy God's presence was anything but what I wanted. And what God says, the punishment for sin, death, is to... Remember Adam and Eve, what did they do? They walked with God in the cool of the day. If the removal of that is death, the presence of that is life. When someone says, you know, we're alive, yes, it's this. There is animation to our physical beings. That's life. But animals have animation to their physical beings. When we as human beings talk about life, it is to have God as our God and we to be his people. It's to have him reconciled and friendly and, and, and his love and, and, and our love back. Um, we have that as believers. As believers, you, you have eternal life because you have God. You have the presence of God. You are in the presence of God, but you have the presence of God. Father said, Jesus says, if you love me, my Father will make his abode in you. We have the, the Spirit of the Father is in us. The Spirit of the Son is in us. The Spirit of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, in us. So for us, when someone says, do you have life? Yes, I have life. And if we say the absence of this friendly presence of God is hell, the presence of this friendly, reconciled God, that's heaven. There's a Sam Cooke song. I listen to Sam Cooke. That's heaven to me. He's a beautiful voice. If you, this is an aside. No extra charge for this. Sam Cooke got his start as a, as a, a soul, not just as a soul singer, but as a spiritual singer. And he started off with a group, The Soul Stirrers. 
your gospel group this week. Go listen to the soul stirs. Beautiful. And he has, a, he has a song, That's Heaven to Me. The heaven for the believer is to be in the immediate presence of a God who loves us. And God is threatening his people. I'm going to take that presence away from you. And why again? Because they said, God, we don't want you. We want our paramour. And God said, if you persist in this, and he's chapter after chapter, if you persist in this, if you persist in this, if you persist in this, I will take it away. And what does the Bible say in, in Peter? God is long-suffering, hoping that some could come to repentance. Some people think that God says, if, if you're idolatrous, you're gone. I, I met, I knew a, a father one time. Man. Corporal punishment. And if that kid disobeys, and then whammo. Because, of course, we, we don't want... And I said to him one day, the kid was like, I don't know, 12 years old. And the father was like, he disobeyed house rule number 3006, and whammo, he brought the hammer down. And I said to this brother, I said, you can thank God that God doesn't do that to you. And he said, what do you mean? I said, because all of us would be <laughs> lying in the dust. God is so long-suffering. Some people say, well, I'm never going to repeat myself. It's just going to be whammo on the first. Oh, oh, what Bible are you reading? What Bible are you reading? And you can thank God God doesn't treat us like that because every one of us would be face down in the mud, <laughs> even right now. Is that not true? So this is just mercy, mercy, mercy. But he does say, I will take it away. And I want to say this and then perhaps we'll quit. One of the things that the people of God here got themselves into this pickle, which is a serious pickle. <laughs> I'm going to take away my reconciled presence. Remember what he's going to take away. You have the tabernacle, and then later with the tabernacle, the tabernacle is the, the mobile presence of God. And then the, the more permanent place, well, it's, not, it's more stationary, the temple. The tabernacle gives way to the temple when the people enter the promised land. God's presence is um, in the Holy of Holies. And he fills the temple to say that he's there in a friendly way, reconciled way. And then he meets with the people of God in that Holy of Holies. You have the Ark of the Covenant. What's in the Ark? The law. What's over the law, which we can thank God for? The mercy seat. So again, when people like think, well, you know, we got laws here. Yes, we're thankful for the law. If God says, I will take my friendly reconciled presence against away from idolaters, if this was against anybody that's ever committed idolatry and there would be no grace, no mercy, what would that mean for all of us who are not going to heaven? You have the mercy seat over the law to show us and blood goes on that mercy seat. And one time a year, the high priest walks in, sprinkles that. The blood of the, 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 the sacrifice cleanses all of our law breaking, even this idolatry. And here's what the people of God forgot. All of that was telling them to look forward to, to who? Christ. Believe in Christ. Believe in Christ. Believe in Christ. Look to Christ for the breach of your sins. Trust in Christ for the breach of your sins. Hope in him to, to cause you to live a holy life. But what were they doing instead? They were trusting in the outward form. They were trusting in the form. We have the temple. We have the temple. We have the sacrifices. We have the priesthood. The form. It's like the wayward wife. Let's say, the, let's say a wife is wayward. 
and she has many paramours. And you call her to account and you say, what are you doing, woman? You have a lawful husband and why are you having all these unlawful paramours? And she were to look at you and say, what are you, what are you talking about? I have a ring. Look at my finger. I have a ring. I'm okay. The Jews were saying, what are you talking about? We have the temple. We're okay. And God said, actually, you're not looking to the God who fills the temple. You're not looking to the Christ that this temple typifies. You're trusting in the outward form. They're formalists. And formalism isn't, we like to stand up or sit down or have like conservative worship. That's not formalism. Formalism, you could be a formalist as a Pentecostal. You could be hooping and hollering and being a formalist. A formalist is just having a show of faith, but no spirit. It's spiritless. It's Christless. It's heartless. It's just, why do you think you're on your way to heaven? Because I'm in a building and there's a book here and we have bread and wine. Did you feed on Christ? Oh, no, I'm not feeding on Christ. I'm feeding on my idolatry. But I'm good. I have a church and I'm called a minister. And did I tell you I have a Bible? And God said, God said, I will take my presence from you. I find behind all of this, as I've been saying all along, clearly it's judgment. Clearly it's judgment. I find the delay, seven, eight, nine. I find it an expression of God's mercy and God's pity. In addition, the other thing I'm going to say, and then I promise I will quit. When we say God will take his presence friendly, reconciled presence from the unrepentant sinner. And that is the second death. That's hell. This drives me back, and I hope it drives you back to Christ. Because of Christ, all our idolatry, all our spiritual adultery, every sin, God has broken the power of that. And we've been forgiven. And we have the presence of God. We are reconciled. And God will never, ever ever take his presence away. We will never suffer this as a believer. And knowing what God in Christ has saved us from is meant to make us love him more, and I would argue this, and to be more gentle with people, especially unrepentant sinners. Were it not for the grace of God, we would be unrepentant sinners. And we would be hearing depart. It's the grace of God. Be gracious. <laughs> May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.